Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 5, The USSR Defeated? Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. This is Episode 5, The USSR Defeated. Hello, history buffs. We're back looking at the Eastern Front of World War II. Just a quick recap. As you know, on June 22, 1941, Nazi-controlled Germany launched its invasion of the USSR in Operation Barbarossa, the greatest land invasion in history. Nearly four million men blasted through the Soviet defenses in three large thrusts. In a matter of weeks, they advanced hundreds of kilometers, destroying or capturing whole armies and hundreds of thousands of men. So as of last week, we had gotten up to looking at the initial Soviet response to the invasion. They lost millions of men. They retreated far, giving up huge swathes of territory. But they also fought hard and exacted heavy casualties themselves. The deeper the Germans penetrated into Soviet territory, the greater were their losses. Even so, the Soviets lost a lot more. And the attack showed the lack of preparation, lack of readiness, and the complete disorganization of the Red Army forces. Stalin, the Stavka, and indeed everyone else in the USSR strove mightily to correct their problems. They moved whole factories beyond the reach of German bombers. Factories that were still operational worked around the clock to produce guns, cannon, ammunition, and the new T-34 and KV-1 tanks arguably the best of the war. What made the greatest difference, though, was adding more men, and yes, women, to the fighting. By the end of June, one week into the war, the Soviets had called up 5,300,000 reservists and deployed eight new armies. By the end of July, they added another 13 whole armies to the fight against the Germans. And in August, 14 more. We left off last week with hurrying Heinz Guderian's Panzer Group II taking Smolensk and destroying the 13th Red Army as it was trying to escape an encirclement east of Minsk. Then the Panzer Groups of Army Group Center captured three Soviet armies in a pocket east of Smolensk. The Germans claimed to have taken 350,000 prisoners. Army Group North, by this time, had taken nearly all of the Baltic states and broken through the Stalin line of defenses in Pskov and Ostrov and were on the road to Leningrad. Army Group South met the greatest resistance of the three groups. Still, they advanced far. By early July, they had traversed more than 500 kilometers or 300 miles and were less than 100 miles from Kiev. The Battle of Smolensk was a turning point, though. After capturing the city, the Germans had to admit that the operation was going slower than they had thought, than they had hoped, than they needed it to, to succeed. Kiev was proving to be a tough nut to crack. So, on July 19th, 1941, Adolf Hitler 
issued Directive Number 33. I'll quote just a bit of it. The second series of battles in the East has ended, along the whole front, with the breach of the Stalin line and the deep thrust of the armored forces. In the area of Army Group Center, mopping up of the strong enemy forces, which still remain between motorized formations, will require considerable time. 1. The northern flank of Army Group South is restricted in its freedom of movement and effectiveness by the fortress of Kiev and the Russian 5th Army in its rear. 2. The aim of the next operations must be to prevent any further sizable enemy forces from withdrawing into the depths of Russia and to wipe them out. In short, Hitler and the OKH, or German High Command, directed Army Group Center to pause where it was in order to give the troops there time to rest and recharge. Subsequent orders directed Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group North to help Army Group North to encircle Leningrad, and Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group to move south to help Panzer Group 1 under General Kleist to take Kiev. Once those two objectives were met, then the two groups could reconverge in the center and drive on to Moscow. Now, it's important to note here that the general staff of the German army, in particular Chief of Staff Franz Holder, Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, Commander-in-Chief of Army Group Center, Walter von Brotich, and Commander-in-Chief of the Army, disagreed. They said there was only time for a single, decisive move on Moscow before winter, and winter would stop them. But Hitler was Hitler. He didn't hear no. No one had ever told him no for years. So his orders went ahead. And this would be a major turning point in the war. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. As I promised last week, we're going to take a look at the wider context of the Second World War right now. Middle of summer, 1941. It was truly a world war at this point, with fighting literally around the globe and it looked like the Axis was winning. For example, the Axis of Germany, Italy, and Japan, with Spain, Hungary, Bulgaria, and other often reluctant members, controlled most of continental Europe outside of the USSR. Germany occupied France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, Poland, the Czech Republic, and with Italian forces occupied Yugoslavia, Albania, and Greece. In North Africa... German and Italian forces, led by the desert fox Erwin Rommel, had driven British and Commonwealth forces across Libya to threaten Egypt, a major strategic asset for Britain, and were besieging the Fort at Tobruk on the Mediterranean coast. The collaboration of Vichy France gave Germany control of much of France's overseas empire, including Syria and much of Africa. In East Africa, British Empire forces defeated Italians and gained control. They re-established Emperor Haile Selassie in Ethiopia. British forces reversed a pro-Axis coup in Iraq and restored a pro-British government there. British, Australian, Free French, and Indian units invaded Syria and Palestine in Operation Exporter on June 8th, repelling the Vichy French. The Allies invaded and occupied Iran in August 1941, deposing the suspected pro-German Reza Shah Pahlavi and replacing him with his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Yes, that Shah of Iran, who would be overthrown in the Islamic Revolution of 1979. 
back to 1941, the Allies did this to secure Iran's oil fields for themselves and open up another supply line from the U.S. and its ports to the USSR. Now, the U.S. is not yet officially in the war, not openly fighting with its military, but it is openly supporting Britain with materiel and shipping. U.S. Navy ships supported the U.K.'s occupation of Iceland in 1941. Also going on at this point is the Battle of the Atlantic, the longest single battle of the war. German U-boats were attacking Allied shipping from the shores of North America to Europe. And in the Pacific, Japan continued its occupation of Nanchukuo and in July 1941 invaded Indochina. The U.S., U.K., and other Western governments imposed complete oil embargo on Japan in response. And this then spurred the Japanese government to prepare for war with the United States. So that's where the world was in mid-summer of 1941. The Axis controls most of continental Europe, large parts of China, and threatens Indochina. So let's return our attention to the Eastern Front, or the Eastern Theater of Operations in Europe. Now, as I said, Hitler's thinking, or ideas, overruled his generals and field marshals' best advice. By midsummer, he wants a solid victory to show that the ultimate conquest of the USSR is possible. He needed to do this because the original plans for Operation Barbarossa, or the original objectives, were to seize Moscow, to conquer Moscow by the middle of August, and to finally end the war by the beginning of October. But by late July, this didn't look possible. They were still hundreds of miles from Moscow. Hitler also needed the resources of the USSR. The food production capacity of Ukraine, as well as its industry in the east of the country, the Donbass. They also needed to push the Soviet bombers out of the range of the crucial Romanian or Romanian oil fields at Ploiești. So when we left off last week, von Lieb's Army Group North was closing in on Leningrad. On August 8th, Hitler ordered von Lieb to surround Leningrad and link up with the Finnish forces that were coming from the northwest through Karelia and around Lake Ladoga. You can see the maps for, to help illustrate this on the website. Shock groups from Hopner's Panzer Group in the north would attack between Lake Ilmen and the Narva River, so that's west of Leningrad. And a second group from the 16th Army would attack south of Lake Ilmen, cut off communications between Leningrad and Moscow, and move toward the target from the east. The main attack crossed the Luger River, and that's south of Leningrad, and also farther west from Kingisep, so again, coming from Estonia from the west, and then directly on to Leningrad. Meanwhile, the army on Lieb's left flank advanced to the town of Narva, Estonia, on the border with Russia, and then to the Estonian capital, Tallinn. In response, the Soviet High Command, the Stavka, ordered the Northwestern Front, commanded by Generals Kliment Voroshilov and Fyodor Vatutin, to counterattack and stop the German advance. Stavka brought up four more armies to attack west and south of Lake Ilmen and destroy the German Tenth Corps 
stopping the advance on Leningrad. Well, that was the plan. They launched the counterattack on August 12th, but the Germans struck first, attacking Veleki Novgorod. So that's Novgorod from the movies. So that city sits at the northern tip of Lake Ilmen and also struck Storia Rusa, which is just south of Lake Ilmen. The Soviets had some initial success surrounding the German 10th Army at Storia Rusa. This could threaten the rear of the main panzer group heading toward Novgorod, but the terrain was difficult. That was as difficult for the Ran Army as it was for the Wehrmacht. Add to that the well-known difficulties Russians had with command and control. Apparently that's something haven't solved 80 years later on. And the counterattack stalled. By August 25th, the invaders had crushed the Red Army and pushed them back to the Lovat River, which flows into Lake Ilmen from the south. Still, the fighting south of Lake Ilmen slowed the advance north toward Leningrad. The Germans pushed past the lake, circling around to the south, surrounding the Red Army forces and closing the gap between Army Group North and Army Group Center. Lieb's main force, meanwhile, continued north toward Leningrad. One group, the 41st Motorized Corps and the 38th Army Corps, attacked eastward from Kingisepp, so that's, again, near Estonia, captured the Luga bridgeheads on August 11th after heavy fighting and cut the rail line west. The Red Army withdrew, continued to resist, slowing the Germans down, but by September 1st, the Red Army had to withdraw another 100 kilometers, or 60 miles, to a city called Orienbaum, now called Lomonosov. This is on the arm of the Gulf of Finland, the body of water separating Estonia from Finland. This meant they were only 30 kilometers from Leningrad itself, but even that connection was soon cut off when German forces reached the Gulf of Finland between Orienbaum and Leningrad on September 7th. Meanwhile, Forces under Field Marshal Erich von Manstein came up along the two axes from the south from Luga and somewhat further east from the shores of Lake Ilmen. By August 16th, they had captured Novgorod and Luga on the 24th. Next, they reached the Volkov River, cutting the rail link to Moscow, as well as the remainder of the Soviet Northwestern Front. Leningrad was now almost completely surrounded. The defending 48th Red Army was down to 6,000 men, some 5,000 rifles and 31 artillery pieces to defend the city. And let's not forget the Finns. In August, they were only 20 kilometers or 12 miles northwest of Leningrad. More forces were circling north and east of Lake Ladoga, so that's the really big lake northeast of Leningrad, or now St. Petersburg. More forces were circling north and east of Lake Ladoga, aiming to advance on the city from the east and meet the German forces coming up from the Novgorod axis. However, the Finns were at best reluctant allies of the axis. From December 1939 to March 1940, the USSR invaded Finland and took significant areas in the Winter War. And then, three days after the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, that's June 22, 1941, so that would take it to June 25th, the Soviet Air Force conducted an air raid on Finnish cities. So, 
Of course, Finland declared war and began allowing German troops to use Finnish territory for conducting offensive operations against the Soviet Union. According to David Glantz, in Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's invasion of Russia in 1941, beginning of the invasion to mid-July, the Finns, quote, conducted only limited objective operations, and after 10th July, they limited their operations to the sector west of Lakes Onega and Ladoga against the Soviet 7th Army, end quote. Still, by September 1941, Finland regained all the territory it had lost in the Winter War. Starting at the end of July, Finnish forces attacked in the Karelian Isthmus, which is that narrow land connecting Finland and Russia between Lake Ladoga and the Gulf of Finland. The Finns pushed the 23rd Red Army to 30 kilometers or 18 miles from the northern edge of Leningrad. They stopped there, but they still cut off the Soviet supply lines to Leningrad. The threat they posed tied down significant Soviet forces for years. Just as a personal note here, my father-in-law, Maurice Burry, served in the Red Army during the war. And in 1944, all the men in his unit were terrified that they would be sent north to fight the Finns. Quote, the Finns were very tough fighters, he said. But then on September 19, 1944, the Finns and the Soviets ceased hostilities, and Maurice's unit was diverted south against the Germans. But let's go back to late summer 1941. In response to the Germans at the outskirts of Leningrad, Stavka, meaning Stalin, reorganized again. Stavka ordered the 48th Army to the northern front in charge of defending the southeastern approaches to Leningrad. They then divided the northern front, itself a recent creation, into the Leningrad Front under Lieutenant General Markhead Mikhailovich Popov and the Karelian Front under Lieutenant General Valerian Frolov. See, they just love reorganizing. The GKO, the Soviet War Cabinet that was part of the reorganization of government after the initial invasion, took direct command of three fronts. Leningrad, Karelian, and Northwestern. The Soviet situation sounds dire, and it was. At the end of August, the Germans were only 40 kilometers south of Leningrad, and the Finns were closer. But remember last week how the Red Army was able to bring dozens of fresh armies up to the front lines, millions of men? By the end of June 1941, they had called up more than 5 million reservists. They mobilized 35 whole armies by the end of August and threw them into the fray. Stavka brought up three fresh armies to the Leningrad, Northwestern, and Karelian fronts, the 4th, 52nd, and 54th. But at the same time, the Germans were strengthening. The 39th Motorized Corps arrived from Army Group Center because, remember, Hitler had issued these orders to halt operations uh, from Army Group Center. Along with two corps from the 16th Army, they moved along the Moscow-Leningrad Road, while the Panzer Group and the 18th Army attacked from the south and west and the 16th Army protected the Germans' right flank. Again, quoting David Glantz, and I really am uh, grateful to his work, quote, Soviet defenses opposite the assembling German hosts were a shambles, end quote. The forces were severely weakened, and the Germans penetrated them easily, moving every 
day closer. General Popov threw divisions into widening gaps and ordered counterattacks, but they failed. So by August 29th, the Germans were threatening to sever the last rail line that led east from Leningrad, and that would totally cut the city off. And still, the Germans kept coming. On September 8th, the 12th Panzer Division captured the town of Schüsselburg on the southern shore of Lake Ladoga. That's very close. This was a disaster for the Soviets. Leningrad was now completely cut off by ground. It could only be resupplied by air or by boat across the lake. So that prompted General Franz Halder, chief of staff of the German High Command, to write in his diary, quote, Leningrad. Our objective has been achieved. We'll now become a subsidiary theater of operations. End quote. So while the Soviets began preparing for the final all-out battle for the city, Hitler made another portentous change. On September 6th, he ordered von Lieb to surround Leningrad, quote, in cooperation with Finnish forces, end quote, and starve it out. This would allow the Germans to transfer mobile and air units to Army Group Center, quote, no later than September 15th, end quote. Why did he do this? Apparently, and this is according to most historians, Hitler believed it would be less costly in lives, German lives, that is, and materiel to let the city starve to death than to assault it. Then Hitler issued Directive Number 35, ordering Army Group Center to begin its assault on Moscow. This was the beginning of the siege of with daily shelling from 240mm guns and daily daytime air raids. We'll come back to the Leningrad siege soon. For now, let's look at the southwestern and southern fronts. I know that this podcast typically has moved geographically north to south. This time we're going to skip from the Leningrad front, 1,200 kilometers south over the western front facing Army Group Center to Kiev, capital of Ukraine. Don't worry, we'll come back to the center next episode. So what's going on? In the south, the Germans' objective was to secure the agricultural and industrial capacity of Ukraine, as well as push the Soviet bombers back out of range of the Ploiesti oil fields in Romania. As I said, the Ukrainian area is the front that resisted the German invasion most strongly. While Army Group North is approaching Leningrad and Army Group Center has taken Smolensk, Army Group South has not gone as far. Most of the infantry is still 200 kilometers west of the Dnipropetrovsk River. In the south, German and Romanian forces from Moldavia still haven't crossed the Dniester River, so they really haven't gotten very far. Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, commander of Army Group South, decided to split his forces, sending two motorized corps to go south toward Kirovogra, which is well south of Kiev, encircle Soviet troops retreating east. The 6th Army would also split. One part would go straight on toward Kiev, and the other would go southward, link up with Schobert's German-Romanian forces, and encircle more of the Red Army. So on the Soviet side, General Kirponos, head of the Southwestern Front, anticipated that the Germans would make their main attack straight on to Kiev. He planned a counterattack to block the advance of Kiev and rescue forces from encirclement. These efforts would fail on July 14th. 
the forces he ordered into the struggle arrived too late, and their attacks were not coordinated. German commander Rundstedt is crafty. He didn't attack Kiev straight on. Instead, he took less well-defended cities and towns nearby, concentrating on surrounding Soviet forces in the south of Ukraine. On July 17th, Kirponos ordered the Red Army forces to retreat to the east side of the Dnipro River, although he would resist, uh, meet stiff resistance to this idea from Stavka, that is, Stalin. The next day, July 18th, Schobert's southern forces crossed the Denisa River, finally, in the south of the country, and put the Soviet forces in danger of yet more encirclements. However, the important city of Odessa still hung on. By July 21st, Panzers closed Anuman, an important city 200 kilometers south-southwest of Kiev. Check the map on the webpage. Panzers enveloped two complete Red Armies, the 6th and the 12th. Kirponos ordered the 26th Army to try to uh, protect them, break them out, but the Germans' motorized corps kept on coming. They were beginning to encircle some 130,000 men who were almost out of supplies and ammunition. They tried to break through the German motorized course of the east, but they were too weak. By late July, they lost communications with headquarters. All they could do was delay the Germans at Uman for a week. By August 2nd, the 11th Panzer Division linked up with the German 101st Jaeger, which is Hunter Division, southeast of Uman, encircling those 130,000 men. Well, by now fewer. Meanwhile, another panzer division linked up with Hungarian forces 100 kilometers further south, creating another pocket. Zhukov, Stalin's military right hand, thought the Germans were stalled after taking Smolensk. He suggested reinforcing the Central Front and withdrawing behind the Dnipro. This meant abandoning Kiev. Can you imagine Stalin's reaction? First of all, he refused. Well, actually, first of all, he screamed at Zhukov. He removed Zhukov as the chief of the general staff, replacing him with Boris Poshnikov, and moved Zhukov to the reserve front. In effect, a demotion. Now, on the ground, the Red Sixth Army tried to fight its way out to the east, and the Twelfth tried to fight to the south, but both failed. From, one, from under 130,000 men... 11,000 survived. 107,000 were captured, including two generals, four corps commanders, 286 tanks, and 953 guns. Stalin accused many of the captured officers of treason, and they were sentenced in absentia to be shot. Later, when some of them were released or retaken by the Soviets, they were shot. Those sentences were carried out. But this encirclement and this capturing of huge numbers of men allowed the German 6th Army under Field Marshal Walther von Rickenau to turn north toward Kiev. Stavka again ordered more counterattacks beginning on August 4th. After four days, the Soviets suffered heavy casualties and accomplished little else. The Germans took more territory and the Red Army withdrew to the vicinity of Kiev. Stavka brought in two fresh armies, there's that rebuilding again, along the Dnieper River, south of Kiev, 
as the Southern Front ran away from the Germans. On August 6th, the German 6th Army reached Kiev and was stopped short by the Soviet 37th Army. Counterattacks restored the forward defenses. So Hitler ordered Rundstedt to halt the offensive on Kiev in favor of destroying it by aerial bombardment. Meanwhile, the Army Group South went to destroy all the Soviet forces remaining west of the Dnipro and south of Zaporozhye, which is at that last great bend of the river where it doubles back from southeast to southwest on its last rush to the Black Sea. So with German forces closing in, Stalin ordered defense of Kiev at all costs. He withdrew the 5th Army to construct defenses on the west bank of the Dnipro and defend the bridgeheads. Another new army, a fresh army, the 40th, went to block Guderian's panzers coming up from the, or coming rather down from the north. But they were already on the east side of the Dnipro at Novgorod Seversky on the Desna River, which is a tributary of the Dnipro on the east side. So you can imagine, this is really bad. The Germans have passed that main river of Ukraine. On August 18th, the Ren Army engineers blew up a dam on the Dnipro-Provetsk, which is now known as Dnipro, which is figuring prominently in the uh, 2022 Russian war in Ukraine. Anyway, they blew up the hydroelectric dam too early, and this prevented two Red Armies from crossing from four days. On the 21st of August, Hitler ordered more of Army Group Center south to take Crimea and the Donetsk Basin, which is the Donbass, even against major disagreements from his senior officers. Even Guderian and Halder flew back from the front to Hitler's Rastenburg headquarters to argue against this measure in vain. So a few days later, the German 51st Army Corps crossed the Dnipro north of Kiev, compromising Soviet defenses. Guderian got close enough the next day to threaten the still incomplete defenses on the Desna River. But the Soviets weren't completely helpless. By the end of August, they had constructed new defensive lines all along the east side of the Dnipro River from Kiev all the way down to the Black Sea. And meanwhile, the coastal army still held out at Odessa, What were those defenses along the Dnipro River like? Well, to give you an idea, I thought I would read to you from a book that I wrote called Army of Worn Souls. This is the true story of my father-in-law, Maurice Burry, a man born in Montreal, drafted into the Soviet Army in 1941, just in time to be partly trained before the Germans invaded. In this part, his unit is staying in fortifications on the east side of the Dnipro. A week passed before a grey dawn saw the 38th Army approach the western edge of Kremenchuk. The local population had dug trenches into the high ground that overlooked a gentle slope toward the broad expanse of the Dnipro. The army settled in to wait for the Germans. The broad Dnipro is the middle of Ukraine, the capital Kiev, 
straddles the river, while the city of Kremenchuk, 300 kilometers southeast and downriver, sits on the left or eastern bank. Maurice looked west, across the river. That's where the enemy is, Captain Tulub said. He was a small man, even younger than Maurice. He pointed to a black cloud only a few miles back. The Red Sixth Army is fighting in Bilatserkva, White Church. That meant the Germans had already penetrated nearly a thousand kilometers from the frontier in less than three months. How could an army conquer half the territory of Ukraine that fast? Maurice thought. Commissar Matvienko appeared behind Maurice's shoulder. The brave Red Army is inflicting heavy losses on the Nazis, he said, gazing to the west. It could turn out to be true, but Maurice only learned that years later. The locals had built bunkers under the trenches. The whole company, all three Odolenia, 36 men and three officers, shared one room for sleeping. They stored their food and ammunition in another compartment. Quartermasters and cooks moved among the trenches and underground corridors to distribute supplies and food. Maurice supervised as his men set up their guns overlooking a road that led to a narrow wooden bridge over the Dnipro River. He wondered if it could support a tank or an army. He also wondered what preparations the army had made for destroying it should the Germans break through here. The army established its routine immediately. Daily, Maurice roused his men, breakfasted with the officers on porridge and tea, inspected the weapons, and spent the day gazing across the broad river. He thought of his mother and his sister in occupied Halichina, of his father, presumably in Montreal, and how agonizing it was that they could not communicate with one another, let one another know they were alive. He forced himself to believe his family was safe. After a few days, the younger corporal, Orest, pointed out a low cloud getting closer. The Germans are coming, he said. Soon, official word confirmed it. General von Cleese had outflanked the Soviet 6th Army and his panzers approached the Dnipro River. By early August, the panzers encircled the 6th and 12th Soviet armies new Uman in central Ukraine, killing or taking prisoner more than 200,000 Red Army soldiers. On the bank of the Dnipro, Officers ordered the men to blend into the landscape as well as they could, a tactic the Germans came to fear throughout the war. Waiting for attack, Maurice and his men grew more and more nervous as the clouds approached the riverbank. By afternoon, they saw refugees approaching the bridges, streams of people on foot, a few rickety trucks. Behind them were the remnants of the 6th Army, mostly foot soldiers, a few battered tanks and hundreds of horse-drawn carts. From their vantage point, Maurice and his boys watched the sorry parade stream across the Dnipro bridges. Then they heard the distant thunder of approaching war, and the Germans were upon them. The airplanes were first. Maurice could never forget the buzzing sound of the Messerschmitts and the screaming Stuka bombers. They filled the sky, bombing and strafing, easily dodging Soviet anti-aircraft fire from the eastern riverbank. Where are our planes? Someone yelled after a bomb shook the bunkers. There wasn't a Soviet aircraft to be seen. Just panic on the ground as the guards blocked the bridges. The Wehrmacht tore apart the ragged Soviet column still on the western bank. Then Maurice and his men saw the dreaded panzers. Some raced along the roads. Others crossed the deserted farmlands more slowly. 
It seemed only minutes before they were at the edge of the river, even though Maurice knew it had to have been hours. Charges under the bridges detonated before the Germans got there, stranding thousands of refugees. The idiots, said Danilo, the lieutenant of the unit to Maurice's right. They should have waited until the first tanks were halfway across and taken some of them down. But Maurice and everyone else knew that was too risky. Behind them, the Soviet heavy artillery started firing. Maurice saw plumes of dust rising as the shells struck along the German tanks, but never actually hit one. Behind the tanks came the infantry in squat armored cars and horses hauling cannons and wagons. By nightfall, the Germans had dug in behind the riverbank, and even though the Soviets kept firing cannons and mortars at them, the Germans didn't seem bothered. They're indestructible, Private Yuri said. We can't even touch them. Don't be stupid, Big Eugene said. He was a broad-shouldered youth who stood more than six feet tall. Our gunners just have to get the range. Well, they sure seem to be having trouble doing that, Yuri said. The Red Army settled into a new routine, hunkered down in the trenches during most of the day as each side's artillery dueled. Sometimes the riflemen would take long shots at their opponents, but never hit anything. Overhead, the cannons and mortars roared and coughed, and below the bluff, the shells exploded among the trucks and tanks. Occasionally they hit something, but usually did no more than send dirt high into the air. The Germans' heavy guns would answer, spitting death overhead to crash down behind them. Usually they missed, but sometimes they smashed apart stores of food or ammunition, sometimes ripping apart men and horses. Once, Maurice and his men rushed up the bank to help douse a fire burning close to where the ammunition was stored. Days dragged. Maurice and his unit spent as much time away from the trenches as the officers would tolerate. They hid in the bunker, playing cards and smoking. While on duty, watching the enemy across the river, they felt useless. That was an excerpt from Army of Worn Souls, book one of the Eastern Front Trilogy by Scott Burry. That's me. That is a true story, the true account of Maurice Burry, a Canadian man drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941. How did a Canadian end up in the Soviet Red Army in 1941? Well, you'll have to read the book to find out. Information about the book and all the links, of course, are in the show notes. But the Germans were closing in on Kiev from three sides, and they outnumbered the defenders with twice as many aircraft and four times as much armor. On August 31st, the panzers and the infantry captured a bridgehead over the Dnipro at Kremenchuk, south of Kiev. Again, it's on the map. Three days later, Guderian's panzers took bridgeheads over the Desna River. Remember, that's east of Kiev. So they can circle in from the east as well. Still, Stalin raged against any suggestions to abandon Kiev. September 11th has, seems to have always been an ominous day. In 1941, the 16th Panzer Division began crossing the Dnipro and moving north, 20 kilometers in one day. Tanks were also coming down from the north along the east side of the river, taking Romney, 200 kilometers east of Kiev. 
the Soviet generals Kiprons and Budeni urged Stalin again to withdraw Soviet forces east, to leave Kiev, or they would only lose whatever forces they had left. Stalin still ordered them not to leave Kiev, nor blow up bridges without permission. So, on September 13th, the German breakthrough threatened an encirclement of the entire southwestern front. That is, the 5th, 26th, 37th, and 38th armies, and part of the 21st army. They had an opportunity to escape through a 24-mile gap to the east of the city. But again, Stalin said no. He fired Budeni as commander of the southwestern direction and replaced him with his military advisor, Timoshenko. On September 16th, the Panzer captured towns southeast of Kiev. Stalin's response was to urge, quote, coolness and steadfastness on the part of all commanders at all levels. Avoiding panic, it is necessary to take all measures to hold occupied positions, end quote. But that very day, Guderian's and Cleese's forces from north and south respectively linked up near Lukovista, 200 kilometers east of Kiev, trapping the entire southwestern front. That's five armies. Finally, Kirponos got the permission to withdraw, but it was too late. He tried to attack the German army to the east, and that only led to huge casualties. The armies were surrounded. Stavka lost all communications with the southwestern front. By September 20th, the 5th Army was down to 2,000 troops. The Germans attacked near Lokovista. Kirponos and most of his senior officers were killed, and the few survivors captured. To quote from a different source, Wikipedia, The Battle of Kiev was an unprecedented defeat for the Red Army, exceeding even the Battle of Bialystok, Minsk, of June-July 1941. The encirclement trapped 452,700 soldiers, 2,642 guns and mortars, and 64 tanks, of which scarcely 15,000 had escaped from the encirclement by the 2nd of October. The southwestern front suffered 700,544 casualties, including 616,304 killed, captured, or missing during the battle. The 5th, 37th, 26th, 21st, and 38th armies, consisting of 43 divisions, were almost annihilated, and the 40th army suffered many losses. Like the Western Front before it, the Southwestern Front had to be recreated almost from scratch. End quote. As David Glass writes, quote, the door was wide open to the Kharkiv and Donbass regions, as well as the southern approaches to Moscow a fact that the German command soon appreciated and exploited, end quote. In the far south, German and Romanian forces pushed along the Black Sea coast. By the end of September, the German 11th Army began invading Crimea. Stavka ordered the evacuation of the Odessa garrison over to Crimea to help defend the peninsula. The Black Sea fleet managed to get the whole garrison to Sevastopol, where they were again surrounded. Whew, that's enough for this week. Again, it's been a long episode. Next week, we'll return to the center stage and the Germans drive to Moscow. 
thanks for listening. And thanks again to supporters. Remember, you can support the podcast through the Podbean app or on Patreon. You can find all the links on the podcast website, beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com or on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Beyond Barbarossa. I've run into a couple of technical snags lately, but I'm working on restoring all episodes of the podcast to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Still, you can listen to the latest episodes, and you can find all the episodes on the beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com webpage, as well as on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just look for the podcast link. If I've made any errors, please let me know so I can correct them. You can contact me by email at contact at writtenword.ca or on the Facebook page for Beyond Barbarossa. All the links again are in the show notes and on the website. So, until next week, keep your paddles in the water and give to good causes. Music, composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Slava Ukraina.